Let's turn one more time. First Samuel 21. First Samuel 21. Read to you. I will read to you. First Samuel 21, 1 through 3. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you and I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now therefore... What you do have what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The word of the Lord. We uh we we've looked left David. You know, David's one of my heroes. Sometimes I just call him the hero. <laughs> he is a hero. We've left him he's last time we saw him he was fleeing from a crazy man. From a crazy man, a Saul, a King Saul, a murderous and jealous king. He's just left Jonathan, his covenant friend. He sought courage and security in his covenant friend. He got it, and then he had to leave. So now he's fled to another friend. This time he's in Nob. He's with another friend named Ahimelech the priest. Well, let's remind ourselves just for a second what the Bible says about David. Number one, David is a loyal servant of the king. He is the king's son-in-law. David is the captain of the king's bodyguard. David is a sweet harp player for the king. He is highly respected among the king's own household. He's dedicated to the institutions of Israel. He's the lover of the prophets. He's devoted to the priestly tabernacle. He is the protector of Israel. Yet, the one who should be the protector of Israel has made up his mind to put him to death. He is public enemy number one in King Saul's mind, and he will do everything in his power to kill him. The situation in David's life is worse than we can imagine. He's been anointed to be the next king of Israel, and he cannot strike at the king. He cannot strike out at the army, the very person and persons that he's vowed to protect. Where is he going to go? He's just left Samuel. In, remember, he was up there with the prophets. And then he fled to Jonathan. That's where he was last. And now he's coming into the presence of the priest, Ahimelech, and his knees. The priest's knees are knocking together. Why, are, why, are he, why is he so afraid? Because David, to be with David is to be in the presence of somebody that, might, they might, that Saul might see is, yeah, these guys are cooking up a conspiracy. If you're with David, you could die. If David simply spoke to anyone, that person was in danger from Saul. We're told in verse 22 that David's own family was taken and hidden away. Saul is growing in his paranoia, and he is going to come after David with everything he's got. So the situation David finds himself in is this. He, uh, if he stays still, it's dangerous. If he moves, it's dangerous. If he talks to somebody, it's dangerous for them. But if he doesn't talk and he doesn't move, it's still dangerous. It's dangerous in every sort of way. How will David negotiate 
this labyrinthine trial. Well, the sermon title is Desperation and Deceit. And the reason I gave it this title is because David resorts in his desperation to deceit. The priest is trembling before David because men like David don't go anywhere alone. Now, whether we, we, whatever you think about, whatever, whoever's the president, he always goes around with a what? A motorcade. (laughs) And back in these days, these men, they went around, they didn't have a motorcade. They had an entourage. And David is alone. Great men are never alone. That's, that's one of the things. Why are you alone? He says, no one is with you. Well, David tells him a story. He tells him a story to set him at ease. He tells him a story to protect him. He's going to use deceit to preserve his life. He's going to tell him a story. What does he tell him? Well, he says, hey, I'm on the king's mission, a secret mission that's only known to me and the king. My men are in an undisclosed location. I'll meet with them later. I need some bread. I need a weapon. I need a word from the Lord. Will you give these things to me? And so David is here using deceit. To protect, to protect this priest. Desperation, in desperation, David resorts to deceit. It's not the first time. In chapter 20, verses 5 through 7, the last two sermons we've had over over David, we've seen that David cooked up a, a deceitful plan about Saul to show Jonathan, Jonathan, your dad is trying to kill me. Jonathan didn't believe it, so he came up with the plan. The plan was the new moon festival's coming. I'm going to be expected to be at my spot at the table with Saul, with you, with Abner, with all the group of people. And what you're going to do is you're going to tell your father when he asks where I'm at, you're going to tell him that you've given me permission to go to Bethlehem and to go to a sacrifice for my family. And then we're going to see how he responds. And if he responds and says, very well, we'll know that your father is not intent on killing me. But if he responds with rage and fury, we'll know that your father is intent on killing me. And, of course, we know the answer to that. But that is still deception. In 1 Samuel 19, remember what Michael did. Saul's men came to kill David. And what did she do? He's sick. He wasn't sick. But that's deception. And so as they leave, she lets him out of a window. That's deception. Again, here's deception. In chapter 21, he comes into the presence of Ahimelech and he resorts to deception again. He's going to resort to deception and lies until King Saul is dead. So here's the question. Is it ever right to deceive someone? (laughs) Is it ever right to tell a lie? Are there or is there a rare exception to the ninth commandment? Let's, Let's make sure we know what the ninth commandment is. I'm going to give, you, give it to you in the King James because that's what you learn when you're in the shorter catechism. <laughs> Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That sounds pretty clear. It sounds like there's no exceptions, no lying, no deception. So how are we going to handle David's deception? How are we going to handle David's lying? Because if we don't deal with it at this point, it's going to crop right back up in verse 10. It's not going to go away until Saul dies. So how are we going to deal with this deception? Well, what I have done in in writing this sermon is I have come, uh, after I studied the commentaries, there's five different interpretations on David's deception. 
And what I want to do is I want to lay them out to you, let you figure out which one you like. I'll tell you the one I like. But this helped me, and I thought this might help you as we think through David's deception. Here's interpretation number one. Now, this is Dale Dale Ralph Davis' interpretation. Some people, this is Dale's uh, interpretation, steer clear of this issue. They recommend to the student that he goes and reads particular books to inform himself about this particular matter, and then they move from that and talk about how God delivered David in this situation. That's a pretty good way to look at it. So he's, what he's doing is he's saying it's on you to go figure out what you think about deception. <laughs> so this is what he says. This is what he writes. All the text is doing here is reporting what Jonathan and David did. It does not recommend that what they did. The Bible is so often in such cases ignores the rub that we as modern readers feel. It is important, however, to distinguish between what the Bible reports and what the Bible recommends. It tells you what Jonathan and David did. It does not say, go and do thou likewise. So here is uh, Davis. Davis steers clear of it. He says, you've got to go study these books and figure out what you think about it. But what I want to do is show you how God worked in David's life to, to rescue David in this. This is a terrible predicament, right? Okay, so that's number one. Here's number two. Some actually say that David did not lie in chapter 20. Some believe that David actually went to Bethlehem for this sacrifice and that he came back. But you and I, it's hard for us to believe that because we know that David was in a field with Jonathan waiting on him to shoot the arrows beyond or to the right. We all know that David was there. So this interpretation is out. And even if it is true that he went to Bethlehem, sorry, uh, we're still going to be dealing with deception later on in chapter 21. So I think number two is out. Number three, some say that David has fallen into a very backslidden condition. This is Richard Phillips. He says this, There is no point, as some commentators have tried, in putting a positive face or spin on David's false speaking, for which he can have no real excuse. David's lying is in fact getting worse, since now he straight-facedly deceives a holy priest of the Lord while present in God's holy temple. The argument that he gives goes like this. David, you need to keep trusting the Lord because look at how he's delivered you back there in Nioth. Remember how Saul's three groups of men came and the Spirit of God incapacitated them? And when Saul came, the Spirit of God incapacitated him. You just need to keep running. You need to keep uh, trusting. You need to not resort to lying and deceit. David's use, according to Philip's, of lying and deception is an indication that David is no longer trusting in the Lord. It's indicative of a backslidden condition. These are my words. I cannot agree. Some people do. Interpretation number four. Now, this one has some merit, I think, more merit. I think number one is a good one. You got to just, but he's not telling you what what the answer is. I think number five is going to be the one that I'm going to stick with. Here's number four. Some say David was still walking with God, but deception and lies cannot be excused. Now, there's some merit here. I mean, we cannot under all circumstances say that a godly man, every single thought and word and deed that he does is right. We can't defend a man at every point. And we all know this. We, I mean, I was sitting about th- thinking about this uh, as I sat there drinking my coffee this afternoon, and I thought to myself, probably not anybody here would would uh, 
say it would defend me if I was driving down the street and I went like this to somebody who pulled in front of me. <laughs> right? We can't defend. I, I won't defend it. Maybe you, should, you, you won't defend yourself. We know who we are. And so we look at passages like Noah, and we see Noah's the great man. Noah receives the word from God. 120 years, Noah preaches. He builds this ark. He's a great guy. And then after he he sacrifices, after they get out of the ark, and then he goes and he does a terrible thing. He gets drunk and he does something bad. We can't defend that. But we don't. do we throw Noah out with the bathwater? Do we throw him out, the baby with the bathwater? I mean, we could think about David. David... Uh, is he walking with God? I think David's walking with God. I think we could say that we can't defend everything David's doing. I think that's a good way of looking at it. I think that David, when he gets uh, becomes king, he's going to have mar- married two women. He's going to marry a few more women. And I think that sets him up for his greater fall later on. But do we stop reading the Psalms because David did some things? that Have you ever stopped reading the Psalms because David did some wrong things? I, I haven't could say the same thing about Abraham. Here's number five. Here's here's the one I'm going to recommend to you. It's not easy, but here's the one I think I recommend to you. The question again. Is it ever right to deceive someone? Is it ever right to tell a story or lie to someone? Are there rare exceptions to the ninth commandment? Now, I've got a lot of help from Walter Chantry. and, And he says... There are rare instances, rare moments and emergencies where deceit is necessary and deceit is justifiable. But when we do this, this is what he says, when we go to this, when we start talking about these rare exceptions, these lights, these red and yellow lights ought to start just flashing all around your eyes. (laughs) They ought ought to be all around you because we're entering into this zone, this very dangerous it's dangerous. It's so dangerous that people don't want to go there, right? They steer clear of it or they recommend books for you to read or they just say this is sin and we can't ever justify this at all. If life was just that simple. Life is not that simple. And I think there are rare times in, where deceit is justifiable. But again, to speak about our human hearts, I think this is the issue that he's trying to point out and I agree with him. He says this, he says... Once you and I find an exception, we want the exception to be the what? (laughs) That's what our hearts want. Our hearts want the exception to be the rule. Um, And instead of just seeing this as just one uh, real exception, our hearts, our human hearts want to compromise and want to throw all the rules out. Like Like the men, the kings in Psalm 2, they just want to take those fetters, those rules, and just chunk them to the side and never ever have to be under them. So we've all heard the example of the Gestapo coming to the door during World War II and banging on the door and saying, we're looking for Jews, where are they? Well, you know they're under your feet or you know they're in, their wa- in your walls and what are you supposed to do? Say, yeah, they're here, I'm not going to lie. No, what you do is you tell a lie to protect human life. But our flesh, after we do something like that, hears this. Oh, I told a lie about the Jews. Those Jews, I saved their lives. Now I can tell a lie about everything. That's what our flesh is like. Even as Christians who have the flesh remaining in us, we would get rid of the rules if we were not careful. So my young people who are here, young person that is over there, young people that are over here, uh, just because they're, I'm saying to you there are rare exceptions, 
about deceit and lying, it doesn't mean you can go home and disobey the fifth commandment. Fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. It says, obey, honor and obey your parents, for this is good, this is right. And so when you go home, you obey the fifth commandment. You owe your parents the truth. You owe your parents openness. This rare exception does not apply at home. Yet here in the life of David, we have a rare, I think, exception. But we don't build our ethics on rare exceptions. Chantry compares the ninth commandment to the sixth commandment. Let's make sure we have our commandments in order. You know, I I watched a video in 2008. I never will forget it. They had all these ministers coming out of a conference. They interviewed all the ministers. They asked them what the Ten Commandments are, and they couldn't name them. Folks, we need to know our Ten Commandments. The Ninth Commandment is thou shalt not bear false witness, and the Sixth Commandment is thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not commit adultery. So we've got our commandments in front of us. In the Sixth Commandment, God loathes murder. God loathes the shedding of blood. Yet at times it is lawful for our government to take men's lives to protect law-abiding citizens. We all know what I'm talking about. The police, the FBI, the NSA are all in places to protect law-abiding citizens. The military is in place to deter a war and to fight a war. At times these men will, for the government... And for our sake, they will shed human blood. Criminals are going to be executed. Criminals will be shot. Wars will be fought and blood will be shed. Yet even when these things happen, when a a police officer pulls out his service weapon, as they call it, his service revolver, and he uses it to save his own life and the life of someone else, it doesn't doesn't mean that we uh, lessen the horror. It doesn't lessen the horror of taking a human life, even when that happens, we think life, we believe life is sacred. Now let's look at the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. God loathes lying. God is a God of truth. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. God, God's Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and therefore our God who's one in three hates lies. You know who else God hates? God hates the devil. You know why God hates the devil? Because he's the father of lies. And this father of lies, think about this now. This this really helps, I think. This really helps me. He violates the ninth commandment in order to murder the human race. He violates the ninth commandment. He lies to Adam and Eve in order to murder them. He's the father of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning. So he uses a lie to bring about the death of the human race. Think about that. So in rare instances, we would say that it's lawful and justified for the government to participate in espionage. Now, espionage is just a big word that means the government gathers information about its enemies. It remains vigilant about those who want to do us harm. It will keep us at bay from enemies and terrorist attacks. The most effective spying occurs when we have agents who infiltrate the bad guys with lies and deceptions. They act the part of a bad guy in order to give information to the government about their tactics, about what they're trying to do in order to stop crimes. 
At the very same time as we think about these things, I'm just going to throw this out. As individuals, we are never to seek revenge, even if these people have done harm to our loved ones or, or those we do love. This, is, this revenge is something God must take and the government is, is the, uh, pl- uh, in place for God to uh, execute judgment on them. But what about those rare exceptions in a man's, when a man is under attack? Is a man supposed to defend himself? And we would say yes. We would say yes, man can def- defend himself. We call it self-defense. If a person is deranged, if a person is coming after you or your family, it is only right for you to deter that, that crime with a gun or, in this case, with a lie to keep human life, human lives alive. Think about David for a second. He's in an extremely rare situation. He's dealing with a man filled with rage. He's dealing with a man who has a spear in his hand all the time. He throws it three times at David. He throws it one time at Jonathan. He's employing all his resources in order to kill one man. David says, you're treating me, you're coming after me with 3,000 men. Later on, when we read some of these things in 1 Samuel, it's going to bring tears to your eyes what this guy's trying to do to one man. He's got it so wrong. And there's nobody, there's, there's nobody, think about this. If we started going crazy and doing something wrong, somebody's going to come after us. The government's over us. This man is the government. This man's the king. He will not submit to the word of God, so nobody's over him. Who's going to stop him? And so David is going to resort to deception in order to stay alive. Legitimate self-defense. He's not defending his reputation with deceit. He's not defending his position with deceit. He's not defending his own wishes and covering up his own sin with deceit. But he's going to use the ninth commandment. He's going to break, if you will, use a rare exception of of deceit in breaking the ninth commandment in order to preserve his own life. And in this case, the life of this priest and later others. It would be my hope that not one of us would ever have to be in this situation. I believe myself that David was able to hold himself together. He was able to walk with the Lord through these days. I think Psalm 34 and Psalm 56, and I'm going to read that here at the end. I think they point out that David wasn't in a terribly backslidden condition. I think that he's in a situation where he has to use deceit in a justifiable way. I think it can be done. And the thing that we need to be so careful about is this, is we would ever do this, we were ever in this situation in order to stay alive. If we practice deceit, if we practice trickery, if we practice lying, the difficult part of this, if you were ever in this situation, these things become patterns. That's the thing we have to be so careful about as we talk about this. There are men who do these dangerous things and they practice deceit and they practice lying in order to preserve human lives. But then after they get out of those situations, what happens? We all know there are situations where men in military, they go out and they fight a war. And the answer to the situation at hand is to use a gun. The answer is the habit, the ingrained habit is to use a gun and go out and fight. But when that same man comes back home, 
and he gets into a fight with his wife, a gun is not the answer. If he uses a gun, that's murder. That's not preserving himself or preserving human life. It's so hard. And the same thing can happen with deceit. If we go out and practice deceit, our hearts can become unstable. Consider the tyranny of a Saul or the tyranny of a Hitler or Kim Jong-un or the tyranny of the leadership that's going on in Eritrea. These countries are plunged into darkness and this, this is a darkness we cannot even conceive of. People are forced in order to stay alive, to live with trickery and deceit and lies. In North Korea, if you go on a vacation to, to China and you come back and you talk about it too positively, you can be accused of slandering North, the, 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 the uh, Kim Jong-un there because you're, you're talking too, pop, too much about somebody else. All the ministry, missionary work, this is an OPC thing, all the missionary work in Eritrea has ceased because the leadership in Eritrea sees Christianity as a national threat to its security. All those who are in allegiance to God there, the state will not tolerate them. In North Korea, Kim Jong-un views religion as a threat to his dictatorship. The citizen who fails to give Kim Jong-un all the glory and the honor is a threat to him. <laughs> to his title, the word great has been added. And the, t- and the song that they play on a regular basis on the radio is, Can't Live Without Him. All of this happens. And so Christians are put to death. Christians are imprisoned. They're placed in concentration camps. And then they're fleeing. And then, of course, there are those who can't flee. What do they do? Well, I've read what they do. They practice their faith very quietly. They keep a low profile. They literally sit in groups with hymn books, and they mouth the words, but they don't say the words. They have their Bibles, and they read their Bibles, and then they hide their Bibles. All this goes on. And think about it. If, if you were to do this for a, a long time, it could become something not so good for us. For a long time, David was honest and open with Saul. He was playing in the house the harp, eating with him at the table. But when Saul began to suspect David of a plot to put against him, David had to resort to trickery just to stay alive. Oh, how we should pray that we never live in this kind of a situation with brutality, brutal leaders that we would have to resort to deceit just to worship God and stay alive. Every Sunday, we pray for the king. Every Sunday, we pray for the president, the authorities over us, that God would use them and move them in paths of righteousness. Specifically, we pray that God would save their souls and bring them into the kingdom of God and make them citizens of heaven, as we heard the past few weeks. We want peaceful and tranquil lives. We want to be able to preach the gospel. We want to be able to lift up Jesus Christ and say his name out loud openly from the streets if we had to, like the lady does in Proverbs 1 on the street corner. We want to be able to do that. We want to say Jesus saves sinners. We want to talk about amazing grace. We know there's only one way of salvation. This situation described is a terrible one, and no one would ever want to be in it. 
And I believe that we can use deceit and lies to save our own lives from monstrous dictators, from wicked kings, and pray for the Lord to help us. If we're found out, do not we would not recant our faith in Christ, but we would stand for Him and be willing to lose our lives. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.25 tells us, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. This is what God desires. He desires that we always speak the truth. David is not in a very pleasant place to be. I do not believe he was backslidden. I do not believe that he's in sin, but I believe he's trying to walk with God with all his heart. And what I want to do is end by reading to you Psalm 56, which is a psalm that says he's, it was written not long after David visited the priest and not long after David went to the city of Gath where he had to play the part of a madman to keep his life. Listen to Psalm 56. Be, pre- be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. Can you feel this? Can you feel this crazy man coming after him? My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in deceit. No, I will put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? All day long they distort my words. All their hearts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps, and they have waited to take my life. Because of wickedness, cast them forth. In anger, put down the peoples, O God. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Indeed, delivered my feet from stumbling. So that I may walk before God in the light of the living. I don't think that sounds like a man who's wandering around in sin. I think this sounds like a man who's trusting in the Lord. And I don't know where you are tonight, but I do know where you can go if you're struggling and you're having a hard time. He says here that God's eyes and His ears are towards those who trust in Him and don't put their trust in in keeping themselves alive, but put their trust in God. If we're crushed, if we need somebody to look to, Look to God. Put your trust in God and He will take care of you. Let's pray. Father, we we think about difficult things. Maybe not everybody would even agree with this interpretation. But Lord, we do agree on one thing. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in You. When I know that enemies are taking my words and using them against me and coming up with things I never said, never did. I can put my trust in you and know that you know what I said. And you will take care of my reputation. You will take care of my life. You will take care of our lives. 
Help us to trust in your word. Help us to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us with strength and power and that we might go from this place energized to praise you and hold fast to you all through the week. Many of us have many things to do. Many duties are in front of us. And Lord, we pray that you will lift the difficulties off of our shoulders and help us to do our duties uh, as unto you. Strengthen us now as we finish our worship this evening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.